I'm not making this up, Nicolas Cage. These Oscar nominations are real. Okay, Matt Damon, why don't you just calm down? Who gets an Oscar nomination for a movie like Invictus? I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is looking for a book your parents bought at the airport to adapt into my next box office blunder. I've made some bad career choices too, compadre. I'm not worried. I can tell you exactly how many cuts there were in every fight scene and taken. I know the best place to look for an easy paycheck is an upcoming Michael Bay CGI crap fest, and Vin Diesel tells every director he won't film a fight he's going to lose. I know America gave up on you after Left Behind, but audiences are still hoping for me to turn it around. How could I know all that and still not know who I am? You, uh, have too much time on your hands? everyone up right now wait everyone you heard me i want this episode in a body bag by sundown welcome to is it really the podcast that challenges popular opinions about movies i'm brandon sharp i'm zach smith michaels and i'm mitch dupree and tonight we're on the run with jason Bourne and asking does the action genre need to be born again zach why don't you give us the plot of the born identity Jason Bourne has no idea who he is, and neither do we, but we know that he's a cold-blooded killer on the run from the government. So the Bourne identity is known for popularizing shaky cam and fast cuts. What are some other influential stylized action movies? Mitch, why don't you get us started? Well, it's impossible to talk about stylized action movies without mentioning, obviously, The Matrix, right? Absolutely. It's been like 20 years since The Matrix came out, and those fight scenes were like something uh, no audience had seen before. It's got this blend of this ballet, like martial arts stuff, and this these groundbreaking visual effects. The Wachowskis really brought uh, this Hong Kong martial arts style of cinema to the States. There's even like these really cool stories that the actors spent four months in this demanding martial arts training before shooting even started, which really gives a sense of legitimacy. And something that I think separates a movie like The Matrix is there are these wide shots where you see that choreography happening and you see that they've really put in the work to do some incredible fight choreography. So 20 years later, like it's still one of the best fight movies of all time for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And how can we talk about Matrix and not talk about bullet time. (laughs) That was something that everyone saw for the first time and their brains blew out of their ears. You know, it just, it really was a just mind blowing effect. Right. Right. Yeah. The thing that I find so interesting about the Matrix though, is that that style never really caught on after that. Like anytime a movie, a movie did anything close to that, People were like, oh, it's a Matrix ripoff, which, you know, you talked about Jason Bourne with the shaky cam and stuff. Hundreds of movies do that. You know, Mm -hmm. you can list 10 right now and no one goes, oh, they're ripping off the Bourne identity. Whereas the Matrix, the bullet time and the the slow motion and and the fighting style was so the Matrix. And so in that universe that it was pretty much impossible for anyone to copy without being criticized. Well, I think the difference for me would be. One of the styles, the style in The Matrix, 
demands an incredible amount of work and technical mastery where unfortunately the style of the shaky cam and close cut that uh, the board movies kind of started it can lead to this cutting of corners it's a much simpler trick to pull off uh and that close cut kind of action star shaky cam stuff it really can trick audiences into thinking anyone is an action star right Right. Uh, as long as you've got those three shots you've got an action shot an impact and a reaction so they just hide all of the actual stunts and they give you the impression of you know a fight scene happening but nothing's happening right it's interesting because i was in a play one time and we were working with a fight choreographer and someone was like you know this is really you know fascinating all the work that has to go into this choreography he said how do they do that in movies and he said well next time you watch a fight scene watch how many cuts there are And that's the thing that now I've actively noticed in every action movie that I watch. Every action movie I watch now, I'm looking for the cuts. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm looking for when they stop fighting. So I think that's why when I see, like, a John Wick or something like that, which has these very impressive long shots, these long takes of just mind-blowing choreography, I think that's why that resonates with me much more than uh, cool effects and shaky cam and and stuff like that. Well, Zach and I have both done some theater and we have done some fight choreography together. And just to do like a 10 second little fight scene in a kid show, it took hours and hours, if not days of rehearsal to get it right. Uh, So when you think about those John Wick movies and those, you know, several minute long action scenes, it just must take weeks and weeks of rehearsal to to really easily. So that's the bar that those movies set and few movies will rise to that. I think something we also see in the matrix is, is kind of a marriage between action and philosophy. Mm. And it was a, it was one of the first times that an action movie really made us stop and think. And, you know, as it, as it kind of questions the very fabric of our reality, you know, and it, it really uh, causes us to take a minute and, and look at some things that we take for granted. And to that point is also why I don't really love The Matrix, is that to me, the philosophy elements of that film, not so much in the first one, but in the sequels, but it's definitely present in the first one. The philosophy is not very subtle. It's very in your face and it's very loud, which, you know, is is interesting. And like you were saying, we hadn't really seen groundbreaking action mixed with that in American cinema. But that's kind of where your your Matrix films lose me in that you have these incredible action sequences which are cutting edge, but then you have this philosophy that's very loud and very, like I was saying, very blunt and not very subtle. I would disagree a little bit just because I would agree that obviously the ideas are front and center in a movie like The Matrix, but the driving action and the plot is still happening and is still present in every scene. So it never feels to me lost in its own head or lost in its ideas. Uh, There's still a movie. It really is a movie for me that like, if you're a kid and you don't understand anything about philosophy or religion or anything like that, you can still enjoy it for what it is. It just has various layers though. You know, obviously those layers are not too subtle as you're an adult. Right. I think if it gets clunky at all, it gets clunky in film two and film three. Absolutely. Which we do not speak of. (laughs) 
That is that's perfectly fine with me. I want to also point out <laughs> kind of the use of CGI in the Matrix versus like a movie uh, like Episode One, Star Wars Episode One, <laughs> where that is they, they came out similar times, and Episode One is like a hundred percent. CGI, and I think we all can admit that it hasn't aged very well. It may have looked good when we saw it that first time, but it does not look good now. And the Matrix still looks good. And I think I think the way they were able to accomplish that was how they used the CGI. They used it in a, a very smart way. It wasn't to like recreate someone's face or make them do something crazy. It was um, like with the bullet time, you know, the CGI is kind of the world around him and they use a lot of cables and make the actors do a lot of those stunts. And right. they're still using, they're still using animatronics in the matrix and they just are able to accomplish a more long lasting feel and look. Right. Which that reminds me of a quote from Ryan Johnson, who directed Looper. I was watching uh, an interview with him and he was saying the best CGI is CGI that disappears. So he's saying like mm -hmm. CGI that you're using to like color out a wire or something like that, because he's saying when when you see CGI, your brain knows that it's CGI mm -hmm. like Right. For instance, the Lion King is coming out soon. And no matter how photorealistic those animals look, we're right. always going to see CGI because we know that that's what it is. Right. And I think that with a Star Wars, you're seeing, you know, entire armies made of CGI and those are front and center. Whereas in The Matrix, it's in the background and in John Wick, it's used to kind of make those other elements that make everything go so seamless disappear. Right. I was yeah. pretty surprised. I found out recently that that really memorable shoot 'em up scene when they're going to save Morpheus down in the level of the office, like the you know, it looks like a bank or something. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Uh, where they're like yes. running along the walls. No CGI in that. Absolutely. Really? Not. Correct. Not one bit Correct. of CGI. And that shocks me because that scene is so incredibly busy with action. There's a lot going on, but uh, it's subtle things. They're they're just using CGI for, you know, on the rooftop, like the background city, things like that, that blend in and you just don't notice. So, uh, yeah, I would agree. The Matrix movies, they're smart about how they marry those practical effects with the CGI effects. Right. And I think that's that's also, again, a tribute to the choreographers that worked on those fight scenes. I got to say, right. if we're talking stylized action, if we're going to mention Keanu and Matrix, we got to mention Keanu and John Wick, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, the yeah. this, Which, this is a movie that's got like the brutality of the wrestling match and they live. It's got the nonstop continuous kind of action like in the raid. It's got the hmm. neon hues and the fluorescent glow of old boy. And it just marries mm -hmm. all of our favorite action tropes into one beautiful, glorious love letter to fighting movies. The first time when that movie was being announced, Mitch and I were both kind of like <laughs> looking down our noses at that film. And I remember when it was doing well, Mitch sent me a text like this has to be a joke. Yeah. And we watched it and. John Wick is almost the opposite of the Matrix in that first one, at least it's straight up just a revenge movie with amazing action sequences. And it's kind of I don't I don't know if I would say it's the thinking man's action movie, but it's the film lovers action movie. Yeah, John Wick, for me, just pumps a little life into the action genre when it needed it. I think we were 
really getting hit hard with the MCU. And this isn't even, even like a different flavor of ice cream. This is a different dessert altogether. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. and we get so much that we've been missing out on. Well, yeah. I would say movies like John Wick to me feel like a response to this inundation of the close cut kind of action movies we've been receiving. There's definitely a lot of talk and buzz Whenever a scene or a movie features long cuts, features uninterrupted action. Like I remember when Daredevil was on Netflix and then had that famous hallway scene in the first season. People freaked Mm -hmm. out and they lost their minds because I think we've been waiting for a return to that style of action. What kind of source material makes for a good action movie? Is the action genre trading good story for loud visual effects? And I think, you know, if we're lucky to get source material at all with our action movies, I think historically we should be getting a pretty good movie. I'd say a couple sources that maybe aren't so sharp are like the video games or not really my cup of tea is the graphic novel. I feel like I've seen a lot of fumbles with a graphic novel Mm -hmm. turned movie, but movies sourced from that 70s and 80s era spy novel make, in my mind, some of the best movies. Authors like Clancy, who wrote Jack Ryan, Ludlum, who wrote the Bourne series, obviously, wrote their stories in that post-Nazi Cold War era, which is really like the height of spycraft. And the stories are uh, so well told that they can be adapted for a modern era, like the Krasinski, Jack Ryan, that we got on Amazon. Same character, different setting. This is more of a anti-terrorism post 9-11 era. And I think Bourne, Jack Ryan, and maybe like Ethan Hunt, those movies are the action genre doing everything right. They've got good story. They've got good action. We've kind of, we're kind of seeing like a good blend. Yeah, and I feel like you brought up Ethan Hunt. I think another great source material is when you take those old school TV shows that didn't quite work and you adapt them correctly. They kind of take all of the cool ideas and they just bring those and use those as the baseline to create cooler stories. Though if you're bringing up TV shows, I've got to bring up the elephant in the room, which is Transformers. Right. Right. Which to me is the prototypical what everyone refers to when they're talking about what's wrong with action movies today. It's a movie like Transformers, a franchise like uh, Transformers. And I think at least for me, what I've seen is it seems like visual effects in particular, they're kind of like chocolate. Like we like chocolate. It's like dessert, but it's Mm -hmm. not the meal. And I feel like there's just a generation of moviegoer that's been raised on chocolate. You know, they go to a movie like Transformer and they think, well, yeah, I'm supposed to see these big giant robots all the time. And I'm supposed that's just Mm -hmm. normal. Right. And there's not really a build up to the visual effects in the way that there used to be. Like I was thinking about, you know, even when we did the Alien episode and there's like almost an hour of movie before we get that first major face hugger scene. So and the power of that, even T2, when he's brought in relatively early, it's still a special treat to see those visual effects. Right. The T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Right, exactly. And it's and it's teased still. You see images, you see parts of it, but you don't you don't get the whole thing. And I do think sometimes action movies in particular, they can I feel like the idea is, uh, oh, I have a great setting or I have a great thing you can look at a set piece. Right. Like I think of Expendables and, you know, 
we're going to blow this up and we're going to send this car off a ridge and stuff like that. What's the new Fast and the Furious? It looks super fun. But, you know, they obviously like started the first idea for the movie was let's get the rock holding onto a, a car and a helicopter and let's write a movie about it. <laughs> right. Uh, so. Right. Yeah, we were just talking kind of on, on another note. Brandon, you were talking about the Cold War and kind of history novels that we took and adapted. And I'd like to talk about the movie Atomic Blonde from one of the directors of John Wick. And Atomic Blonde for me was a movie that I was very excited about. Because I thought it looked super cool. And they took America's fragile relationship with with Russia in the 80s. And, you know, I thought it was going to be a cool spy action movie. And aside from one terrific action sequence, that movie was so boring. And I think clearly the director has learned from that because, you know, he made Deadpool 2, which is good. And the new John Wick film, you can have cool action. But if there's no story, who cares? And your story can be simple. Like, you know, in, in John Wick, there's plenty of movies with a simple premise like, you know, Die Hard, the first Rambo movie. Those are all very simple ideas. But the characters are so strong, they take what works, which is that character, that John McClane and some of the ideas, and then they just kind of run with that. Yeah, I would agree. Movies like Atomic Blonde, it's so action driven, but there's no memorable characters. It feels very similar to me to a movie like Salt with Angelina Jolie. I can't tell you one thing about that movie. I don't remember. I just remember that's the Angelina Jolie spy movie, right? That was worse than Mr. and Mrs. Smith. It's all action and you just can't remember anything. I would contrast that with like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, something that's more story driven, but a bit of a snoozer for me. I wish there were more things going on with the plot uh, to keep me interested. I loved that movie and Gary Oldman has a great performance in in that movie. He, I think if he didn't win an Oscar, he almost did, but I really feel like the spy genre is a balancing act. I feel like it's really easy to like slip into super wordy dialogue and story and lose your audience. This is a great movie. It's just not really what I look for when I when I think of action movie, spy movie. And to bring it back to Jason Bourne, uh, when I was rewatching The Bourne Identity this week, I was just really surprised at how villainous and how just surprisingly effective uh, villainizing the CIA was in this movie. Right. And I think with this caveat for people who grew up in my generation who, you know, were before 9-11 and lived through 9-11 and lived in a post 9-11 war uh, world. Yeah, kind of a Freudian slip there. (laughs) This was well, this was a moment. I think this movie, it was a response to these fears we had as a nation of our dwindling privacy and it's kind of splashed on the silver screen. And I think that the current generation, if they were to watch this movie, they might not understand how impactful these scenes were when we were watching it in 2002, because they would just take, you know, statements like, you know, we're going to look up your entire life history to be kind of matter of fact. But it was in the moment. It was awe inspiring. It was terrifying. And it felt like Big Brother just had its you know tendrils everywhere and knew everything. And I was shocked at how effective the movie was at villainizing the government in a way that didn't feel like mustache twirling, but did feel threatening and foreboding. Right. And, and again, as far as taking elements that work, I've not read the books. I think you've read them, right, Brandon? Yes, not all of them. Right. And I you Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I I get the sense 
that those books were kind of written for your airport audience, if that makes a sense for like, right. you know, something to read on the plane or the train, but not something that you would sit down and be riveted by. Yeah, I think that's a that's a common misconception just because okay. of our age and when these books were released. These books were the I'm, I'm trying to think of a comparison, but they were the books to read at that time when they were okay. coming out. Everyone was reading them. They would talk about them on TV shows. And it was just it was the hot thing to be reading at that time. I do think you're right, Mitch. I feel like the releasing of The Born Identity was at a very interesting time in, in our culture, in our country. I don't remember how having these hostile thoughts towards the government at that time. But I do remember sympathizing with this character and kind of how his life has been put in the meat grinder Mm. for a machine that he doesn't believe in. Mm. We get to see kind of the stripped down Jason Bourne at that point because he, you know, he has no memory. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, again, to speak to the way that this film is is shot and the action sequences, I think that this movie And I I don't want to say gets a pass, but I think that now upon rewatch, like the shaky cam and the quick editing and the stuff, it's all it all adds to Jason Bourne's character. Like, it's not just shot like out of laziness. It's here's a character who's constantly getting new information, who's constantly figuring stuff out. So there is no big long shot where you can kind of take it all in and breathe. You're Mm -hmm. getting close ups of like pens and like little things like that. So I I think that that's a cool way that Doug Lyman chose to helm those action sequences where you are almost feeling like Jason Bourne yourself. Man, I would love to tack on to that because I think it's pretty common for people to look at things like shaky cam today and to view it as a gimmick. Right. Like it's a cheap trick in cinema. But at the time, if you think about this, wasn't the first shaky cam movie, but It was definitely the most prominent and the way it was used. It was an evolution in the language of cinema for an era of information overload. And all of these Bourne movies are in some way about gathering information. So the action and the feeling of not knowing what's going on that mirrors the protagonist, what's happening in the story uh, so beautifully, so perfectly. It's really an incredible feat to pull off in the way this movie was shot. So let's talk about the influence of Matt Damon as Jason Bourne. Why did we find this character so compelling? What traces of the Bourne identity do we see in action movies today? Well, I'll tell you what sets Matt Damon apart from me in the Bourne identity. It's his stocky figure. And it's that's going to sound really goofy, but Jason Bourne is a brawler kind of spy, right? He's someone who when you watch these scenes, these fight scenes, it's all about the punches and the noise of bodies colliding. I would directly contrast that with, you know, some other major action stars like The Rock and your James Bond kind of characters. Uh, Jason Bourne is a close quarters martial artist. So there is something unique about that that I think was maybe we were craving. Right. And and also Jason Bourne was a was a character who could take a hit. I heard a rumor that in Vin Diesel's contract, it says that he does not lose fights. And <laughs> like for movies that he's in, that's the thing I heard. I don't know if it's true, but, you know, when you think about it, when's the last time you saw a movie where like a guy just beat the crap out of the rock? And, you know, you saw him all bruised and beaten up and he kept coming after them. Or you saw Vin Diesel, 
get beat up. You know, like think of the last movie where you saw some action star just get beat and beat and beat and still manage to, you know, get that final punch in and and get away. And I think that that's the thing about Jason Bourne that's so awesome. He never stops. Like once he wins the fight, he doesn't have a moment to like, you know, give a one liner because he's got to escape because there's more guys coming. So there's, you know, okay, like I'm just beating up people who are in my way. Like I'm my goal is to run like at the end of the movie when he basically tells him, like, don't follow me. Like, there's not this I'm I'm going to go get revenge on these guys. And, you know, until you get to supremacy where and where that's kind of the plot of the movie. But in identity, he's running away. And I think that that's what we relate to is that the oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to fight like 100 men. I'd want to get out of there. Yeah, I completely agree. He he really does something interesting. And I think the lack of dialogue really, really plays into how compelling his character is. Like, you know, contrast with like a James Bond who is all innuendo and smooth one liners. Jason Bourne, all business. You know, he only speaks when it is absolutely necessary. I think one thing that really helps us relate Uh, to the Jason Bourne character is the fact that he starts out the movie knowing as much as the viewer knows. Yes. So there is no potential for secrets, uh, a double cross, a character twist. We're finding out everything when he's finding it out. So I think, I think it really helps us relate to him and you know, there, there are no lies. There are no secrets. We can't be betrayed by this character. Right. Another thing, too, is and Brandon, I wonder if maybe you could speak to this a little bit, is the casting of Matt Damon, because historically people thought that this was going to be a disaster. I was too young. I wasn't really in the mix. I wasn't really a film viewer when this film came out. But I've read that people were not excited about Matt Damon. He was the guy from Goodwill Hunting and like Talented mm-hmm. Mr. Ripley and all these other movies and mm-hmm. that they just thought he was not going to be able to play this character. And I think that because Matt Damon, especially in that first one, he just looks like this little choir boy. When you see him just, you know, stab a dude with a pen, your immediate reaction is whoa like it's it's shocking to see i think that's what really grabs you if you look at damon's filmography you're right there was talented mr ripley there was like a three or four like r-rated school ties i think was one and a couple things there he was in saving private ryan the right. rainmaker goodwill hunting he right. he was an a-lister by this point but maybe not a logical choice for an action film he right. was an A-lister for Drama. people of a certain age, maybe. Yeah. And right. he was too, th- those movies were too old and mature for me at that point. So I think going into this, this was one of the first movies I had seen him in. And I think you're right. Anyone who had seen him in other movies may have been caught off guard. But when he grabs that cop's baton in the yeah. park uh-huh, and yeah. does the, the old one, too, and <laughs> takes off running, you're like, oh, my gosh. So what do we see at that point? We see him. First of all, he gets off the boat. He disappears behind the truck. And that, like, blew my mind a little bit. And I was like, yeah. OK, this guy can do cool stuff. And then we get see him in the park. And I was like, oh, this guy can fight. Mm-hmm. And then we see him in the embassy. And it's like, oh, he can really fight. 
He right. really knows what he's doing. Right. Like I said before, like we're learning these things also as he's learning them and he just grows and grows and grows to this like just insane character. But right. to piggyback on what you'd said earlier, I do feel tied to him as a viewer because we're seeing everything from his perspective. Uh, I'm right. thinking early in the movie, that scene when he visits the bank and he goes to his deposit box and he realizes when he finds his passports and the cash and the gun, who he might be. And the music just starts to pick up and pace. Mm. And there's a feeling of uh, that he is not in control at that moment, that he doesn't know what's going on and he's afraid. And then when he's running away in that scene, the fire escape almost falls out from underneath him. And I think, oh, he right. might die here. Like he is right. not a James Bond or even an Ethan Hunt who to me feels extremely capable, always a little bit out of danger or harm's way. Jason Bourne is us and he right. might fail. Yeah. And and what's the first what's the first thing that we see in the Bourne identity? What is the very first thing we see in that movie? His seemingly dead body floating in the water, right? It's him getting saved. So the first time we right. meet this character, it's him getting saved by these, you know, these humble fishermen. So we were kind of like, oh, like, what's what's this guy's story? So I think that plays into, you know, every time he does something, we know that he's not invincible. Matt Damon has seemingly been in a bit of a cinematic slump with yeah. movies like The Great Wall, <laughs> Downsizing, Wolf. Suburbicon, and of course, like the most recent installment to the, the Bourne series, which is Jason Bourne, which I didn't hate. I didn't I, I didn't hate it. in IMAX during that film. Brandon is so, the super so, fan so, keeping the franchise alive. <laughs> you're darn right. So so what is happening and what separates Damon from an actor like Nicolas Cage, who we all feel like has hit rock bottom? Like what's keeping Damon off the bottom in our minds, at least? Well, can I start with a quote that I found about Matt Damon and a little bit of his outside life? I'm going to assume you're saying yes. <laughs> Matt Damon is a Hollywood A-lister who presents himself as just a regular guy. He's the star of the Jason Bourne action series, various high-budget thrillers, and a surprising number of films where he must be rescued from space. He regularly appears in Oscar season prestige movies directed by male directors that sound good on paper but fade by January. He's charming, but never interesting. It takes directors like the Coen brothers or Steven Soderbergh to make his presence memorable. His notable qualities include being best friends with fellow A-list actor Ben Affleck, having blonde hair and a toothy smile, being from Boston, and using his genuine smarts to give interviews in which he discusses politics. <laughs> and I, I really do, I who, really who do said think that? Uh, it was actually a BuzzFeed article, which usually does not have anything that I'm interested in. But that's, that's fun. I like that. That's, that's pretty good, right? Uh, because I think that's that's right on the, the money. He is a guy who I think is not that interesting, but he just seems to present himself as a likable everyman. Yeah. Whenever people tell me that he's one of their favorite actors, it always blows my mind a little bit because I'm not going to say that he's vanilla ice cream Yeah. because I think he's I, I do think he's talented and I do think he's good at what he does, yeah. but he's never been like a, Ooh, Matt Damon's in this movie. I'm, I'm going to go see it. Like he's never been, it's usually I'm already interested in the movie. And I think I'm the only one of the three of us who has, who has seen Suburbicon. 
but you are let me tell you that was the first time when i was like what is happening with ben affleck not ben affleck the other guy matt damon they kind of blend <laughs> together i get it <laughs> yeah because the great wall like the director was very acclaimed like you were saying mitch and and there is a level of like you know why not try something even though that film is problematic with the whitewashing and everything but when i saw suburbicon i was like you why are are you doing this because your buddy George Clooney is directing this? And then I, you know, I saw downsizing because it's from the director of Sideways. And I was like, what? Matt Damon, what are you doing? I don't understand why he's making the career choices that he's making. I think, though, to speak to the quote, I feel like you could assemble a paragraph of rhetoric about anyone that that makes them sound bad you know like i think you could do something similar with almost any actor i think something that separates matt damon from like a nicholas cage is i think we're talking about the difference between the smoky mountains and mount everest i think matt damon skyrocketed (laughs) to to like he had like a meteoric rise whereas like nicholas cage was like hanging out on some high mole hills you know what i'm saying like uh, he was kind of good he was good in some stuff but he didn't really have that like you know matt damon level fame so i think the the journey to the bottom was much quicker for nicholas cage than it has been for matt damon he has goodwill with the audience with america at least i think see what i like about yeah. the quote though is i feel like he's losing that goodwill uh because yeah. what it speaks to is his persona outside of his film career which I think is starting to fade with time and people are starting to get a little wary of. Zach mentioned the Great Wall where, uh, you know, it's whitewashing. But he had a string of gaffes uh, and interviews where he was really lambasted on Twitter for not being inclusive and for there was that hashtag Damon's planning for a while. Yeah. Uh, and I think America is sort of falling out of love with Matt Damon because he, in his private life, represents this sort of stale liberalism and he's kind of a, you know, just a bum. I don't disagree with that. I think he has lost his perfume like qualities. There was like a string of appearances on the Jimmy Kimmel show where he just comes across as like a jerk. Uh huh. Smarmy. Yeah, kind of out of touch, getting real worked up and not able to take a joke. He does come across as that type of person right i think also though on the other hand to speak to him versus a nicholas cage nicholas cage's bad movies are a little loud like there's people who will actively seek out a bad <laughs> nicholas cage movie to watch with their friends no one is seeking out the great wall or suburbicon to like watch on a right. friday night with their buddies and i feel like nicholas cage we will never respect him again <laughs> we will there will never be a movie where we're like whoa we were wrong i feel like if matt damon like if a great movie came out with him this year he would instantly earn back favor with a large amount of moviegoers oh i totally agree let's end the podcast there i totally agree <laughs> how long ago was the martian 2016 i think Sure. So like a few a few years ago, but something like that, which was very good. I thought it was very good. I thought he was very good in it. Sure. He's able to coast after something like that for a few years, sink a big one and then coast for a few years, do some artsy stuff. Now, I I do want to say something about the most recent Jason Bourne film. The most fantastic. 
Jake, it was amazing. Not, don't don't lie. Don't lie to yourself, Brandon. This is this is the problem. <laughs> don't lie to yourself. Here's the thing. That movie was not good. In fact, it features one of the worst performances I've ever seen in a movie from Julia Stiles. Oh, she was terrible. Yeah. Matt Damon is also not good in that movie. But here's the thing. Stupendous. Where? No. Where where does that riot take place, Brandon, in the movie? I don't remember. I've only seen it once or twice. There's that riot scene in the movie, which I remember... That the way that that was directed and shot and filmed was so tense and so exciting. And I was like, whoa, I have no idea what's happening in this boring movie. But this scene is shot so well. Oh, my goodness. I'm excited. And then we cut to Matt Damon giving a real bad performance. Like I wanted the movie to be as good as that scene. And I mean, every performance in that movie is bad. So I don't know. Is it that director has lost touch with? communicating with actors or is it on Matt Damon so there there's this kind of thing where i think we want to believe that that level of action or you know a, a comeback from Damon like that is possible but i think at the same time maybe we are seeing an actor who is losing his touch with his craft This is Matt Damon. This is Ben Affleck. I was wondering when you were going to make this call. You didn't actually think I was going to let you use close cuts to cut corners, did you? (sighs) No, I guess not. What do you want, Matt? Are you writing any post-Nazi Cold War spycraft screenplays? I retired after Goodwill Hunting. You know that. Well, who's finding good source material for new action movies, then? There aren't any good action stories being adapted anymore. Then what do you want with me? The Bourne Identity. Have you forgotten? You were the gritty super spy for the post-9-11 age. You made audiences sympathize for soldiers who became cogs in a big government machine. And you made us afraid intelligence agencies were using technology to spy on American citizens. You left behind two bodies, Ethan Hunt and James Bond. We just can't forgive that. Damon? I want to come in. Just like Bourne. In the movie. Okay. Well, that series opened with Bourne getting shot and saved by fishermen, so remember you're not invincible. Now, how do you want to do it? That's right. And the audience discovered information as he did. So they knew he wasn't lying. He was trustworthy. You need to trust me. And I need someone I know to bring me in. Who? There was a guy in Paris, Dwayne Johnson. Part of the program, he used to handle WWE wrestlers. 30 minutes under the world clock. Send him alone, give him your phone. What if I can't find him? It's easy. He's standing right next to you. Perhaps we can arrange a meeting right now. The world is ready for action movies that favor long takes and mind-blowing choreography over cool effects. We could work together. Where are you? In Boston. I doubt that. Why? If you were in Boston, we would be having this conversation face-to-face.
This is where it started for us. This is where it ends. Hey, thanks for listening to our episode on Matt Damon and why action movies need to be born again. So if anyone knows Kirk Cameron, maybe he could throw together a baptism for us. You know, because he's a famous evangelist. I I apologize, I was lame. Anyways, if you want to talk to us, please leave a comment on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We can be found at the Is It Really Podcast. We're always looking for new topic ideas, and we're even going to be pulling some quotes from you, the listeners, in some upcoming episodes, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, Don't forget, subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're up to it, please give a rating and review. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Mitch Dupree, reminding you to please observe the rules of the road. See you next time.